talk about um, inerrancy and infallibility of, of the scriptures as part of this conversation. Um, what is your kind of um, working definition of these terms? Um, and, and I wonder why um, that's important kind of for the formation of, of this book. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. This is worth putting off the podcast interview for 30 more seconds to hear about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Felicia Masonheimer. She is the founder of Every Woman a Theologian. She is an author and podcast host, among many other things. Felicia, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having me. So uh, how, how are things in, in the great state of, of Michigan? They're cold. I don't. Where are you, Andy? Uh, so we're we're based out of so CBS based out of the Atlanta area, but I'm actually remote. Uh, so I'm North Carolina. So warmer than here, I guarantee you. So <laughs> a little bit jealous. It's supposed to be negative two tomorrow, and uh, that might be part of this like winter storm we're getting. But that's also pretty normal here. So <laughs> long winters. Yeah, so I I grew up in the Research Triangle Park area of North Carolina. So I had friends from all over the country, and my friends from Michigan always used to like use two hands to show what part of the state they're from. Is that like a thing up there in Michigan? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay. When you're shaped like a mitten, you gotta just use your hand. It's the <laughs> fastest way to show people where you live. And actually, we joked that almost any state could technically do it. Florida could do it. Virginia could. You could use your hand if you wanted to, but we kind of have the monopoly on it. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I, I think I'd be remiss to ask, um, you know, when time we're recording this, we're just a few days out from the horrible events that happened at Michigan State. Um, you know, I don't know how far you are from that community. And certainly something like that hitting in your home state um, must be difficult. So how, how are things uh, for, for your community right now? We're about five hours north of Michigan State, but everybody, you know, knows somebody who you know, either went there or has a student there, or, um, some people actually know the families who are affected by this shooting. And it really is heartbreaking, um, and senseless, but something that's been a big encouragement to our Christian community here is just to see that at the same time that this terrible, painful thing happened on one college campus, we have, people coming to Christ and being, you know, revived in their hearts on other college campuses. And so we've just really been praying that, um, that spirit of revival and restoration comes to Michigan state through this and that the Christian community through intervarsity and crew and other ministries can really reach those families and reach the students there. So we'll get to the the book in a few minutes, but uh, tell us about the organization you've started, uh, Every Woman a Theologian. Yes. Yeah, so Every Woman a Theologian exists to equip women, men, families to know what they believe, why they believe it, and how to communicate it graciously to the world around them. Um, the heart behind what what I do and what our team does is really evangelism. I really hope for people to feel confident in explaining what they believe, but also I hope that they will do it, as Peter said, um, to give a defense with gentleness and respect so that your witness remains unstained um, in the world. And I think so often people either don't know what they believe for real, they just adopt it from someone else. So it's a theology problem, or they do know what they believe, but they're not gracious. And then it's a love problem. And so we need to have both of those things. And that's really what every woman, a theologian tries to do. Tell us a little bit more about your podcast. So I'm the host of Verity podcast. Verity means truth. And it's a pretty simple format. I don't have a co-host. It's just me. And we do little deep dives into different theological topics. And we like to, I like to look at different angles of tithing or communion or baptism. Like what do different church traditions believe about these things? How can we understand them better so we can actually have conversations with people who believe differently than us? I think it's so important for Christians to unify around the gospel and unify around those core doctrines and then understand how their fellow believers arrive at their conclusions in other areas. So that's a lot of what I do on the podcast. We have a new book, Every Woman a Theologian. This book is an invitation to know what you believe, live it confidently, and communicate it graciously. You wrote, to become a theologian, we have to shed the academic overtones we've attached to the idea. Certainly, there are truly academic theologians, but for the sake of my purpose here, we will call them scholars. Before theology became an academic pursuit, it was the foundation for living, active faith in Jesus, and still is today. Faith is not just a feeling, it requires an engaged mind. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of uh, the framework um, you were going through as you were uh, cultivating the idea of writing this book. 
I am always thinking about the person who is living a normal life, working their job, is busy, feels like they don't maybe have time for a ton of theological study and yet needs to be equipped to share their faith effectively and answer the questions that are being asked of them as a Christian in the world. And so in writing this book, that's who I had in mind was that person. How can we equip that person to understand what it means to be saved? Even if they grew up in the church, can they actually explain that to someone else? And so when I was writing this, yes, it's a theology book, but the theology is written to be accessible and understandable to someone who maybe doesn't ever want to go to seminary and never will. They are able to access it and then interpret that for their own world and learn how to communicate their faith to other people. That's really what I was thinking about when I was creating it. It is a systematic theology, which means that instead of just, you know, looking at the whole of scripture and like following the books of the Bible and pulling the theology out in a chronological or biblical order, we're looking at it topically. So we're looking at the theology of the Bible, theology of Jesus Christ and who he was, theology of sin, etc. We're just going through it topically all the way to theology of the end times. And so you get kind of a nice macro view of Christian belief in one handy little book. There are some um, powerful statements um, from the book um, that kind of pulled out for conversation when you wrote uh, theology without intimacy is a hollow thing, neither relevant nor compelling. No unbelieving person wants it and they shouldn't because it isn't Christianity. Pursue theology to pursue God's heart. And you'll be surprised to find that the doctrine leads to devotion. I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there. So I think when we think about theology, a lot of us immediately think intellect, right? And it's true. Um, theology requires using your mind. And here's the thing. Everybody already has a theology. We all already have assumptions about God and the Bible, things we pick up from our churches, from our experiences, and we have to check those against the word of God. So we're all already theologians in a way. The question is whether we are people of the book, if we are checking that against scripture and against what it says. But what happens too often is people get scared of theology because they think it's all just going to be in their head or it's going to be super intellectual or they had experiences with people who use theology to berate others or attack others or to um, judge hypocritically or harshly. And that is not what biblical theology does. A biblical theology will always involve both your head and your heart. It will involve both your mind and your emotions. It's about both theology, right truth, orthodoxy, sound teaching, and also orthopraxy or right living intimacy with God and with other people. And you can't have a biblical theology without intimacy with the Lord and with fellowship with other people, you can't have it. And so we have to begin to see theology as that blending of both the spiritual disciplines and intimacy with God, and also thinking rightly about him. This book uh, gets really practical for those that have never been equipped to think of faith beyond just, you know, a personal belief system. You give uh, a compelling look at at the most foundational and fundamental aspects of Christian theology, following the Apostle and Nicene Creed, 
um, statements, you know, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, salvation in the church. Why was this important, important structure for you to organize the book around? I think it's important today, especially because we're living in an age where all theology, all truths of Christianity are being called into question. So at one point it might've been, you know, some different freedom issues or differences of practice, but now everything is up for grabs from the resurrection to Jesus deity, to the Holy spirit, to the holiness required of Christians and how they live their lives. It's all up for grabs in today's culture. It's all being questioned and dismantled. And God isn't afraid of our questions. He's not afraid of us breaking down what we believe. We should do that. I mean, Jesus himself broke down the law. He explained it and said, this is where it comes from. This is what it means. This is how to obey it. But he didn't throw it out. And that's something that we as a society, as at least in Western society, American Christians specifically, I think need to pay close attention to is what did the early church hold on to and where did they get that from? Who did they take it from? Why were those truths, the ones that they were willing to fight for? Those are probably pretty important, you know, to Christianity. And because evangelical churches, at least often don't do as much with the creeds or liturgy. I think there's been a departure and maybe even a forgetfulness of what the church has taught on these things. And that's why I really try to bring in as much history as I can into the book as well, just to show us this is the core. This is where we begin. And this is also where we end, where we land. You begin um, with looking at scripture. Why does this book, um, you know, on, on, you know, on, again, kind of looking at a belief around scripture, why is that important for the beginning of kind of forming this theological interpretation? And, and, and what would you say your understanding of what the scriptures are and why uh, we have them? So this is actually one of my favorite topics because um, when I was a little younger, several years ago, I went through a period of time where I really struggled with why the Bible gets to tell me what to do. So up to that point, I had a religion degree already. I knew all the stuff. I knew what scripture said about Christ. I knew what it said about holiness. And specifically, I had been writing about biblical sexuality for quite some time at that point due to part of my own testimony. But at some point I came to the word of God and I just thought, okay, I've believed that this has authority to tell me how to live my life, but why, where did the Bible even come from? And this led to a deep dive on my part of discovering how was the Bible compiled? How was it canonized? Why can I actually trust this? And I came out on the other side of that, even more convinced of the uniqueness of the Bible, of its trustworthiness and of just how special it is in terms of historical documentation, just in general. The fact that the Bible is consistent in its overall doctrinal message when compiled by multiple witnesses over thousands of years who are all pointing to the same big story, the same things. That's incredible. And the amount of eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ himself the amount of documentation to his existence exceeds even the documentation about Alexander the Great. And nobody doubts that Alexander the Great was who he was or did what he did. And so from a historical perspective, that was just very impressive to me. And that's actually what 
kept me in the faith for that period of time and led to me coming out on the other side of that, a much stronger believer in Christ. And so when I look at the Bible, I see the, the historicity of it. I see the trustworthiness of it. I see the respect that God has for our minds and for our cultures. The fact that he would give this material to people in these different cultures that he would condescend to reveal himself in that way to me is so special. And that today Christians today, we can be a little bit, I think one person called it uh, chronological snobbery. We can be a little bit arrogant in that we think that because we're newer and fresher, we know better than everybody else. Instead of looking back and saying, wow, with reverence, this has been handed down carefully for years upon years upon years. And it tells a story of a God who made himself small so that we could be one with him so that we could experience him so that we could be reconciled to him. And so I take all of that into consideration when I'm studying the Bible and when I'm teaching it. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we're here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Talk about um, inerrancy and infallibility of, of the scriptures as part of this conversation. Um, what is your kind of um, working definition of these terms? Um, and, and I wonder why um, that's important kind of for the formation of, of this book. I think um, inerrancy and infallibility, yes, they can be very confusing terms for some people. Um, they are different. So inerrancy obviously means the Bible is without error in all of its doctrinal teachings. And this applies to the original manuscripts. It's not saying that every single translation it itself is inerrant or every Bible on your shelf physically is inerrant because you can have a typo, you know, nowadays. What it's referring to is in the original manuscripts, the Bible was inerrant. It was not with error. Infallibility means that it's unable to deceive you, that when rightly interpreted, it is unable to deceive you. It will always lead you into truth. And I think these are very important terms to describe even more important concepts. When you start to walk away from inerrancy or infallibility, you really start to remove um, the authority 
of the Bible, because then you have to decide, well, what pieces have error and what pieces can deceive and what ones don't. And so I think there, it is a very important to understand the true meanings of these words, you know, um, and not adhere to extremist approaches to them. For instance, um, saying the King James version is the only Bible you can use, but to really honor what the people who read these scriptures believed about them when Jesus was alive and after he ascended and they did believe that the Bible was unable to deceive them and it was without error. Yeah. You know, for uh, those of our audience and, you know, we've got a, a mixture of kind of, you know, like theologically trained ministers and of course lay individuals. And for some people listening, this might, these words might be part of kind of a faith statement for your church and for others it, it it's not part of a faith statement um of, of their church um you know these words are are relatively a new concept when it comes to thinking of the bible you know they really only took shape in their modern form in the 1970s and certainly i, I think for a lot of people the idea of not using those terms is a slippery slope right you know mm -hmm. um you know, when you talk about the nature and purpose and function of the Bible. Um, so for me, like, for example, I hold, I hold the Bible in the highest regard. I believe it's God's word given through godly inspiration to help us better understand who God is and who we are in relation to God and each other and our purpose as divine image bearers. Um, and I can also believe that the Bible is not a full expression of who God is and how God functions in the world because it's not the nature by which it was written to a particular people in a particular context, but that doesn't change the fact that um, it is God-breathed and divinely inspired. It just means that, you know, we're not called to worship the Bible as it, if it is God, because we also believe that God is the living word, which the Bible tells right. us is the Holy Spirit, you know? And so right. I, I think this, this is a term that oftentimes is used to um, divide people along a theological line. Um, and so I think that's why it's important to kind of understand kind of the essence of someone who might use it to describe their beliefs in the Bible and where it's coming from. Um, at the same time, do you think there's, do you think there's a, a danger of viewing the Bible as inerrant and infallible, especially when it comes to views expressed about women and, and women's role in the world and, and kind of how, how do you wrestle with that um, in light of kind of that understanding of the Bible. I don't think the problem there is with inerrancy or an infallibility. I think the problem is with your, your hermeneutic or your interpretation of it, because the Bible can be completely inerrant and infallible and teach us accurately about women's equality and value and ability to teach and lead and evangelize. You know, the, the my upholding the inerrancy and infallibility of scripture has made me even more passionate about being called as a woman to do what I do, because I know that scripture authoritatively equips me to do that. So I think that I have seen what you're saying, that people who use the inerrancy or an infallibility of scripture to say, well, the Bible's infallible or it's inerrant and it can't be an error. And it says this about women. So therefore you can't speak in church or you can't do et cetera, but really it has nothing to do with the Bible being an error or the Bible deceiving. It has to do with their 
way of approaching it. And often they're taking cultural assumptions about femininity or cultural assumptions about masculinity and reading those Westernized versions onto the text. They're eisegeting a lot of times the text, which means they're reading their own interpretations onto it instead of letting it speak for itself in its context. So then the, the inerrancy or the infallibility of the Bible is never actually in question at all. The issue is someone coming to that text in fear that they're losing something or threatened by a specific interpretation of a passage about women teaching or women leading afraid of what might happen if a woman was teaching in the church, instead of asking, what did Paul mean? What was the context here? And how do we reconcile these passages about women leading or teaching or women in general? How do we reconcile those with every other passage that talks about women prophesying and praying and leading worship and teaching Apollos or hosting house churches. It's looking at the Bible as one whole piece. And I think when we do that regularly, consistently, and allowing the Holy Spirit to guide our understanding, we can easily hold that tension of a spirit-led interpretation of the Bible and its inerrancy and infallibility at the same time. Those are a lot of words. So hopefully that doesn't sound super intimidating to anybody who's listening. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I want to return to to one of the first quotes I read from the book where you wrote, to become theologians, we have to shed the academic overtones we've attached to the idea. Certainly, there are truly academic theologians, but for the sake of my purpose here, we will call them scholars. Before theology became an academic pursuit, it was the foundation for a living act of faith in Jesus and still is today. Faith is not just a feeling, it requires an engaged mind. And to a certain degree, the rise of the, uh, you know, technical advancement and and accessibility of information um, is is greater now than before. However, accessibility does not equal or equate to um, to to usage. Um, you know, availability of information does not equal credibility. Intellectualism is is being challenged by the idea that everyone can be an expert because they read it on the internet, if you will. <laughs> um, you know, when it comes to theology, it, it can often be the same. So what is the balance between studying the rich history of biblical criticism and theological insight with being an armchair theologian? I think a lot of it comes down to to the motive of your heart. Again, are you studying theology to first grow in intimacy with God? Or are you studying theology to win an argument on Facebook? That's the difference. If your theology only functions for your own exaltation and not God's, then it's not a biblical theology, no matter how orthodox you are, because it's really about you you know, and winning the argument or being the smartest in the room or knowing all the fancy words. And what God is after are theologians, people who know the truth about him rightly, but who live it rightly too, and whose hearts are sold out to him and who are walking with the Holy Spirit, refining them. It's about the Holy Spirit and the word of God together, working to transform the church. And so if somebody is an armchair theologian, my pick, my thought 
immediately is somebody who is living this in their head, but they're not living it with their life. And any pursuit of theological knowledge, biblical knowledge should impact how we actually live day to day, because that's what it's meant to do. It's meant to actually transform your life, your attitude, your words, your outlook. It can't, it can't help but do that if it's a true gospel unstained by pride. And that's what biblical theology is all about. Yeah, I agree that um, theological thought cannot be detached um, from faith. Um, but but doesn't it go both ways? Shouldn't faith also not be detached from from sound core theological thought? And, and if that's the case, um, how do we guard ourselves uh, against both of those polarities, if you will? Yeah, I love that you bring that up because I work with a lot of different denominations and I myself have actually attended or been a member of 10 different denominations over the course of my life. So in, in being in those different churches, what I've seen is you often have an extreme one direction or the other. In some churches, you will have a lot of emotion or a lot of um, intimacy with God, prayer life, um, expressiveness, etc. And then in other churches, you'll have a really strong focus on the word of God, inerrancy, infallibility, et cetera. Um, and each of those churches can also have a weakness. So the more expressive churches, they might feel very close to God, but sometimes they draw conclusions about God that aren't true because they really don't anchor themselves in the word of God and in the history of the Christian church, the legacy that they're a part of. And then on the other hand, you kind of mentioned this earlier, there are people who use the Bible and use inerrancy and fallibility to completely ignore the spirit of God and completely ignore um, the beautiful expression of intimacy with God and, and faith in him. And it is so much the combination of those two things. So if you are on a more expressive relational um, side of faith, that's wonderful. But we know who God is and how he loves us because of the word because of the rich history of Christianity that we can look at and read the writings of the people who've come before us. And we can read what the apostles said and what the early church did. And we can learn, Hey, these are the essential truths of what it means to be a Christian. Cause once you remove those, you have no definition for this love or this experience of God that you worship. And at that point, you know, you're no different than someone who is, just plain spiritual or new age or whatever. So there are boundaries that God has given on who he is and what he does and how he defines love and how he defines justice and holiness. And we have to operate within those to truly experience the depth of relationship that he offers. As we look at uh, each of our theological convictions, really kind of that go beyond kind of, again, those core essential beliefs for our faith, uh, really best summarized by the apostles and Nicene Creed. Um, they cannot be removed from, from two things, our unconscious and conscious bias. Um, and even more specifically, the most common form of explicit bias are our confirmation bias. So, you know, within each of us, especially if we were raised in the church in a particular tradition, um, 
you know, we have a, a shaped theological worldview kind of from that tradition. So, you know, for example, for me, raised as a, a white American male evangelical, there's a fascinating set of biases that are brought into my theological worldview. Um, what do you think uh, the importance of identifying and understanding and checking these biases are to, to forming a, a healthier and more um, well-rounded or gospel-centric theological worldview? I think it's very important to check our biases, including, as you mentioned, this confirmation bias, where everything that you believe is just being confirmed around you because you're never interacting with something that's different. And this is why being truly ecumenical, ecumenical means, you know, interdenominational, uniting around the core of Christianity, but having honor and respect for the different expressions of it. I think it's important for us to expose ourselves to these other practices of Christianity, these other denominations, as much as we can be curious about them. And also to read widely from different people different expressions, different denominations, so that we're exposed to the reality of how they live life in Christ. I have sometimes seen on social media where in the world that I'm in doing ministry on social media, you'll see other people who will recommend a list of their favorite authors. And all of the authors are in one theological tradition, only one. And so you know, if that that's fine, you can have those as your favorites. Everyone's entitled to your favorites. But the question is, if you never read outside of that particular framework, are you able to honestly understand someone who is in a different framework? Can you have a healthy conversation with them? Or are you going to misrepresent them because you don't know anything about what they actually believe? Um, I'm right now studying a book on Catholic theology with a friend of mine. Neither of us are Catholic, and we're not going to be becoming Catholic, but it's really helped us in understanding what our Catholic friends believe. And I think sometimes we we don't expose ourselves um, to these different strains of belief, um, streams of living water, as Richard Foster called the branches of the church. And when we do that, we actually shortchange ourselves because we actually learn a lot of neat things about God and the Bible from hearing from other sources. Yeah, I wonder, um, you have a pretty active um, kind of social media presence, and I've, I've got to imagine in all your postings on theology, you've received, um, you know, feedback from readers or and listeners or, you know, insight into things. I don't know if this is a, you know, a correctly formed question, but was there a particular kind of like core or essential theological belief uh, of Christianity that you were surprised to hear back from somebody like, oh, I really didn't realize that was a thing, <laughs> or you really shed light into this area that, you know, was there something like that that really surprised you, you know, as, as it helped form, you know, the different aspects that you wrote about in the book? Um, a lot of people don't realize how essential the Trinity is to Christianity. Like they, they kind of take it for granted, I guess we all kind of do, but it really is a wild doctrine. And yet it's the one that was most fought for in the first 500 years. And now today is actually becoming a, a big issue again, as we have to talk with people who are spiritual, but not religious. So 
it, it's very interesting that the Trinity is often one that people will say, wow, I, I never even thought about this or why it mattered for me, or I never thought it was a big deal. Um, and, and a lot of people are actually having evangelistic conversations with people who struggle with the Trinity. When I think many who grow up in the church, maybe don't, you know, we kind of just take it for granted. Um, so yes, that was actually surprising to me how often that was a difficult doctrine to, um, accept or understand. Obviously it's hard to understand, but accepting it, um, and seeing, seeing it in scripture has been harder for some people lately. Yeah. It's fascinating. Um, I pastored a new church store for eight years and our specific focus was, um, really for people who were de-churched. So people who grew up in church, but no longer church or unchurched people, people who just never were part of a faith tradition growing up. And I would say, uh, probably, um, the Trinity was the most difficult aspect of discipleship. Um, interesting enough, probably to kind of like one of the early church heresies, you know, that we, yeah, I say heresy, that's what we called Marcion, but really you can understand the theology that Marcion was wrestling through and the fact that he could not look at the God of the Old Testament and see the God of the New Testament and Jesus Christ and think those two gods were compatible and the conclusions he drew in that. And that was often, that often um, is the case, especially for those that I find are, are deconstructing their faith or people who never grew up in faith, but are wrestling with this idea. Um, and so it's fascinating to kind of create a, um, you know, a, a pathway for people to journey through uh, those, those challenging aspects of theology. Um, how do you imagine this, this book being used by local churches? Well, I would love to see this led by women for women. Now, obviously I think the content can be applied to men too, but, um, I really would love to see lay women using it to disciple and equip other women. And then for it to spread from there for women to be theologically equipped, um, with just that openness to other denominations and, and encouragement to evangelize. And we have an eight week study that goes with this book. So we've actually created that as a resource if people wanted to do that, but that's what I would love to see is just to see women having these discussions, talking about these issues. Most women want this. They want to talk on a deeper level, but they don't know how to exactly get there or what questions to ask or what topics to broach. And so I hope this is a part of that for some of them. Our guest is Felicia Masonheimer. The book is Every Woman a Theologian. You can stay connected with her by visiting feliciamasonheimer.com. Felicia, it's been a, a joy speaking with you. Uh, thank you for reminding us that doctrine leads to devotion, attention to adoration. Thank you for having me. Hey, you're not going to want to fast forward because you want to hear about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023. For more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. 
If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.